Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to BFBS SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. Forty years ago, the Falkland Islands were on the cusp of liberation from Argentine invaders. We walked up the steps of the hospital and the Argentinian guard was sat with a pistol on his lap, asleep. <laughs> and a lady opened the doors and shouted, It's the British! It's the British! Victory, of course, came at a price. 255 British troops killed, 775 wounded. We will examine the lessons learned from the conflict and their relevance four decades on with the man who led three commando brigade across the Falklands and a veteran who teaches military leaders of today. Any campaign anywhere, really, is absolutely reliant on the logistics tail. The British troops ended up walking across 50 miles of bog fighting most of the way because there weren't enough helicopters, they didn't have their full ration packs, they didn't have the sufficient ammunition. As well as assessing how the Falklands legacy now shapes the UK's armed forces, we'll hear how that legacy lives on for the Falklanders who experienced the trauma of war. The Harrier, with its wings that are drooped slightly, angled slightly down, when they're coming at you head on like that fast, by God, they're an evil looking aircraft. <laughs> On the 14th of June 1982, a ceasefire was declared in the Falklands conflict. Argentine forces were now effectively surrounded in the capital Port Stanley after two nights of fierce battles. British soldiers and Marines had captured Mount Harriet, Two Sisters and Mount Longdon, then Wireless Ridge and Mount Tumbledown. We will talk today to Major General Julian Thompson, who led Three Commando Brigade in that British victory, about what he learnt in the conflict. But first, let's hear some of his memories of the final hours before Argentine surrender, along with Brian Faulkner from Three Para and Royal Marine Captain Rod Boswell. And just to warn you, you may find some of what they describe upsetting. I was summoned to a meeting with Jeremy Moore on Goat Ridge, which overlooks Tumbledown. And I was standing looking at what I thought was going to be my objectives for the next night through my binoculars when I heard the voice of a sergeant major saying, get off the effing skyline, you effers, the effing war isn't over yet. And I realised he was shouting at me, quite rightly, because I was standing about on his skyline, thereby inviting shellfire on him. So I flung myself down, started looking through my binoculars again, and then a pair of boots came up alongside me, and it was David Chandler, the CEO of Two Para who said, I think it may be over. He had seen, and I hadn't arrived in time to see, the bulk of the Argentine army streaming back in, in, into Stanley. A message came over the air to the command, uh, from the commanding officer to our 2IC that uh, white flags had been seen over Stanley. We all looked at each other and went, well, that's it. And then just went into Stanley. It was a mess. They left their soldiers where they, they'd been shot, killed, blown up on the roads. I was already in Stanley. When all things started to fall apart, for some reason, we had become the Brigadier's personal bodyguard. And he said, I want you to go and locate a position for Brigade Headquarters in Stanley. Um, so I got a helicopter, found a house right next to the race course. I then thought, that's it, it's all done for me. I'm, I, and I, went, I took a walk down into town to have a look round and stumbled across the cable and wireless station. And I went in, and the bloke was there, he was on, he was working. I said, can I make a phone call? He said, where do you want a phone? I said, 
my sister in London. And he said, yeah, here you are. So as they were still surrendering all around me, I was talking to my sister, saying, will you tell the family that I'm alive? I'm in Stanley, the war's over. And that was when the helicopter went overhead with the, with the white flag. While we were going forward, a helicopter flew overhead, dangling a white flag below it. And I thought, ah, that's Jeremy going forward to negotiate the surrender. And so I walked forward. It's quite strange walking through the tail end of a retreating army. And they looked at me rather strangely. They didn't do anything. And I went to the the building where the, the headquarters was, their headquarters, and a very smart Argentine officer greeted me in immaculate English. And he said, uh, what do you want? So I said, uh, he said, Brigadier. He said he recognised my rank badges because he'd just been to the uh, British Army Staff College a couple of years before. I said, is my general there? He said, no, mine is, with two officers. And I knew who they were. They were Rod Bell, the interpreter, and Mike Rose, commanding 22 SS, setting up the arrangements for surrender. And so I thought, I don't want to go in and destroy what I hope is the rapport being established between these guys. I turned on my heel and left. The two doctors that we had, they indicated that they wanted to go to the hospital. All the Falkland Islanders that lived in Stanley had been packed into the hospital. That's that's what the doctors wanted to see, that they'd been treated all right. We walked up the steps of the hospital and the Argentinian guard was sat with a pistol on his lap, asleep. <laughs> So Jock Wilson and I smacked him with an SMG and said, we are here. And he went, oh. And a lady opened the doors and looked at us and she stood at the door and shouted, it's the British, it's the British. And we went in and they just came from everywhere inside. There was four of us, you know, five, six weeks of gunge, dirt and filth on us. Um... They were so happy, we said, you're free now, and they were giving us tea and coffee and everything, and they were just elated. That was Brian Faulkner, Rod Boswell and Julian Thompson, who is with us now and also with us, as always, Professor of Defence Studies, Michael Clark. A warm welcome to you both. Julian, we heard you talking about that dawn on Goat Ridge. Can you remember what you were thinking? Did you allow yourself to believe at that point that it was over and that you'd sealed victory? Well, I had to shake myself, really, because I'd been expecting that we'd go on fighting around the back of Standing. And, and in fact, I had already given the objectives to my brigade, which meant that when we realised we could crack on and get in there, all I had to say to my chief of staff was, unleash them, and so they knew where to go, which saved a lot of messing around and giving orders. But I had to shake myself several times, really. And I should never forget when I heard that eventually the surrender had been signed, a feeling of relief. No more young men on either side are going to have to die. We can all go home and thank God for that. Professor Michael Clarke, you said on this programme a few weeks ago that at the time it felt like a throwback to a kind of hand-to-hand warfare that we'd long since moved on from. If we had to reclaim occupied territory again, would we do it in the same way? Well, in some respects, no, because there'd be very different combat enablers now. Uh, much more, many more robotic systems, unmanned systems, use of drones. There'd be a different mix of light and heavy uh, forces and so on. So in, in many ways it would look very different. But in certain ways, of course, it would be the same. Because ultimately, whatever enablers you employ, somebody's got to occupy the ground. Somebody's got to be there. 
And so ultimately, whether it comes down to real battling or, or just moving in, sooner or later, somebody with you know, flesh and blood and commitment and imagination has got to be there in the territory that you say now belongs to us. And so, you know, certain aspects of warfare never change, and certainly that's one of them. And Julian, we'll talk about the wider lessons in a moment, but personally, you already had 30 years of military experience then. How much did you learn from leading three commando brigade across the Falklands? Well, I'd never done anything like this in my life, though I'd had plenty of experience in what I call the wars of the retreat from empire in, in Malaysia and Borneo and Cyprus and so forth. I'd never, ever had anything like this. This was a, a new thing. And what I learned really was, and relearned, because one never learns new lessons in war, you always learn ones that have been forgotten. The unexpected usually happens. The importance of logistics is absolutely vital. You can't get anything right until you get your logistics right. You need ammunition, food, transport, and so forth. And finally, leadership at the lowest possible level. We were very lucky because our guys were used to taking the reins from dead or wounded superiors. So the battles in the end were won and fought by Marines and private soldiers led by corporals and young officers. You can have the cleverest plan in the world, but if the guys who've got to carry it out are no use, you can forget about it. And our guys were terrific. Well, to learn the wider lessons of the Falklands conflict, you have to start with the question, why did Britain win? Dr Andy Corbett is a Royal Navy veteran who now teaches defence studies at King's College London, including a master's module about the Falklands conflict. Really, it was a very close run thing indeed. Uh, and probably up until about a week before the, uh, the final capitulation, the UK was still very actively seeking some form of resolution other than a complete defeat in order to save military lives in, in what was expected to be actually a far more costly campaign than it was in the end. But in the end, it was a straightforward military defeat of one force by another. And to be fair, I think you have to put the Argentinian defeat down to superior British forces, not in the sense of more, but in the sense of better. And what did Britain get right? Britain has prided itself for about 150 years on having small professional military forces, other than a short stint with, uh, with national service after the, the Second World War. The UK's armed forces have essentially been professional for, for, for over 100 years. And, and that professionalism in the context of the, the Falklands campaign, the attitude of the personnel doing the fighting is going to hugely influence it as opposed to straightforward mass, if you like. And when it comes down to it, it's going to be people facing each other. I think in this case, the, the quality of the British Armed Forces came through. And where did Argentina go wrong then? The forces that the Argentinians deployed onto the island were initially their own battalions of um, professional soldiers, but they were then enhanced with, with conscript troops. And those conscript troops really didn't stand up to, to the assault that they, they faced. So... Firstly, I think the Argentinian forces that were deployed were not always professional, and that cost them. Secondly, I think the Argentinians completely misread the British interest in protecting the Falkland Islands from a takeover. But that's not entirely their fault. The, the British attitude towards the Falkland Islands over the you know, 25, 20 odd years before was pretty much one of neglect. So they were deceived into thinking that there wasn't going to be a, a counterattack, if you like. And then the forces that they put onto the island to defend it really weren't up to facing that or defeating a counterattack when it happened. 
You mentioned earlier the professionalism and the attitude of British forces. Presumably, though, they didn't get everything right. No, there will always be mistakes at every level up to, to the political. The lack of deterrence activity prior to 1982 fed directly into the very fact that Argentina did invade. There were a number of, of tactical errors that had very significant implications, not least of which there was a succession of, of minor errors that led to Sir Galahad and Sir Tristram being exposed in daylight, which led to the, to the bombing and the, the death of uh, a number of, the, uh, of, of troops uh, on, on uh, Sir Galahad. None of those individual decisions that led to that can really be faulted in isolation, but when you put them together, then you can see with hindsight, it's very easy to say they should never have been there. The main things that came out of this for me are that any campaign anywhere really, but certainly a campaign such as this, is absolutely reliant on the logistics tail. The fact that British troops ended up walking across 50 miles of bog fighting most of the way because there weren't enough helicopters, they didn't have their full ration packs, they didn't have the sufficient ammunition, the, the, the guns weren't able to follow them because there weren't enough helicopters. Uh, and they did all of this over a, a two-week, three-week period in miserable conditions. It, it, it's testament to, to how, the, as I said, they, they, uh, the, the calibre of the troops will see you through a lot. But um, the main failing, I think, was the lack of appreciation of how difficult the logistics support is going to be, and then the lack of provision of logistics. And what do you think we learned militarily from the Falklands campaign? You mentioned logistics there. What else? One of the lessons is that we'll go through ammunition far more quickly than we think. One of the warships, HMS Glamorgan, went through her entire war stock three times in three weeks. So we need to start thinking about that in terms of how we procure weapon systems and then how many of the systems, missiles and that kind of stuff that we, 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 we want to provide within them. And 40 years on, how relevant and important are the lessons learned now to Britain's armed forces? The detailed lessons about how to sustain a two brigade campaign on an island 8,000 miles away are probably something of specialist historical interest. The important lessons, I think, firstly, the importance of having truly professional armed forces. And that requires constant investment in the equipment that you use, but far more importantly, constant investment in the, uh, the, the people who, who are make up the armed forces. Without them and without the right people there, then regardless of the kit you've got, the, uh, the, the armed forces will just will not be as good. And does the current structure of Britain's armed forces still owe much to the legacy of the Falklands? Yes, yeah, yeah, they um. One of the major lessons that we relearned is that armed forces working singly are okay. Armed forces working together in the way that they did during the Falklands campaign are far more effective. And the, the, the notion of joint campaigns wasn't new. The word might have been, but one of the lessons that came out of the Falklands that actually then did change the way the armed forces is structured is this notion of jointery. So... Mm -hmm. In, uh, in the, in the mid-1990s, the, the, the permanent joint headquarters was established and a number of different spin-offs have come out. So we've got the, the joint force headquarters, which is always the thing that will then command deployed British forces. So again, it's a, it's a joint headquarters. It's one headquarters and it's not staffed by the army or the navy or the air force. It's staffed by officers. Dr Andy Corbett there. Uh, Julian Thompson, 40 years on, what do you see as the most important military lessons of the Falklands War, the ones that are still most relevant today? Well, I think we've just covered them in, in 
And I'd like to reiterate the importance of logistics, the fact that the unexpected always happens, and jointry is very important, as has just been emphasised. And in fact, of course, we've got to remember that the Defence Review of 1980 destroyed the idea, or was going to destroy the idea of jointry. Joint exercises were out. Joint pamphlets had been dispensed with. The idea of jointry had been forgotten because everyone was concentrating on the war on the Central Front against the Soviet Union. And I actually wrote a paper when I was at the RCDS about two years before talking about jointry and was told it wasn't going to be required. And we've learnt a bitter lesson, and I'm glad that Andrew's brought out the importance of jointry, because without that, we're not going to get anywhere. You can't do things in isolation. You just get it wrong. We've also got to remember that one of the reasons why we didn't have enough helicopters was because they were sunk in the Atlantic conveyor. And I never forget a man sticking his head around the corner of my CP just as I was putting the final touches to the plan to move them all forward by helicopter when he said, Atlantic conveyor's been sunk. It was tear it up and start again day. And you've got to be prepared to be hit by really bad news and get round it. And understand that unless you are robust enough to change the plan and react to the actual circumstances, you'll never win. Well, the Defence Secretary at the time, John Knott, published a lessons learned document. It raised concerns about how quickly fires had spread in Royal Navy warships and said design changes were needed. It also called for improvements to Sea Harrier fighter jets to provide greater endurance and weapon carrying capacity. Michael Clark, have those lessons shaped the military equipment the UK has today or have technology advances left them in the mists of time? No, in many respects, it did have a big effect, certainly had a big effect on ship design. I mean, I think a bit, the Falklands was a bit like the Battle of Jutland, where we lost a lot of ships because of the problems of, of flash and the, the inability to keep magazines clear of explosives that were already on the ship. Um, that changed the design of warships, and I think the ship design changed a lot after that, and certainly far less aluminium was put into modern warships because it doesn't react very well to fire. Anti-submarine warfare, we gave a lot more uh, evidence of, of that. And, you know, one of the interesting things, and Julian will know this very well, is we gave much more attention after that to night fighting equipment because to a, to a disciplined, good force, night is a friend. Um, the, the one thing I think that has not been learned properly, though we know it, is air defence assets. Uh, air defence for our ground forces is still very, very inadequate. The GBAD, ground-based air defences, are really poor, and they're all in the works, but they're in the work. They always get, keep getting put back another five years and another five years. And still, our war fighting capacities are lacking in air defence assets. And if we didn't learn that lesson in the Falklands, I don't know when we're going to learn it. Hmm. Uh, Julian, the Battle of Goose Green was pivotal. The UK won, but it cost 18 British lives. You said very honestly that you believe you made mistakes, that you sent troops into Goose Green under-resourced, but you had reasons for those decisions. So what would you tell a military commander today that they could learn from Goose Green? The, the lesson there is do not under-resource people when you send them off into to fight a battle like that. I didn't want to do Goose Green. In fact, in, in my opinion, it was a diversion. My uh, intelligence chap said, don't bother about it. It's a self-administering POW camp. They've locked themselves in there. And in fact, mm. we were actually going off in the wrong direction to attack Goose Green. And stupidly, I allowed myself to, to, to treat it as a diversion and, and cost lives as a result. And I think about that every day of my life. 
and I should have, in fact, gone down myself, not that I'd have done any better than they did, but I should have taken with me another unit, a commando or a battalion, plus some light armour, and we'd have been through the thing in a few hours. I didn't. I under-resourced, and it's a real lesson to learn. Do not under-resource uh, situations like that. Uh, Michael, Andy Corbett talked about how the Falcons had driven joint thinking and operations that are essential to the UK's armed forces today. It also has a political legacy. Every time a government looks to make defence cuts, they are asked, could we retake the Falklands? Uh, how much impact has that had in the size and shape of our armed forces now? Yeah, it, it comes up every time, doesn't it? It's a meaningless question. It's a bit like saying, could we still win the Battle of Waterloo? It, it's a yardstick that is irrelevant because time moves on. But one thing, and this goes back to what Julian said um, and uh, Andy Corbett, thing that the real war uses up equipment, it uses up resources. And we're learning this now from the Ukraine war. And that to be honest, you know, this is a risk analysis idea. We, we, we structure ourselves to fight a war in Europe, rather like a, a Falklands or a Ukraine war. And we, we reckon that we won't need to fight it for a few years. So we take risks with the, the amount of, of resource that we're prepared to store, the amount of ammunition we've got, the number of units we've got. The fact is that the, the Falklands reminds us, and Ukraine war is telling us now, that if we now, with what we have now, if we went to fight this sort of war, the whole train set would, would have gone within a month. We'd lose the whole train mm. set in a month because we'll have used it all up. And the idea that you can somehow keep stocks at low levels and, and that you will have time to increase them when these things arise is a, is a big risk. And you know, as we enter this, this decade, I think we're more aware of how big those risks have become. I agree totally with what has just been said. It's this business of trying to treat the armed forces like a shopping centre, saying we have a just-in-time resupply system. It's sorry, you never get it in time. You need it all there, all the time. The trouble is that costs money, because you to stock lots of spares and lots of bits of kit costs money, and it's, it's, it's much better, much easier to say, "Aren't we marvellous? We have everything in the shop window. There's nothing behind it at all," than it is to spend the money, and much more expensive to spend the money on making certain we've got all the stuff. I mean, we got through huge amounts of gun ammunition. I mean, I would stock my gun lines for a night battle with about 480 rounds per gun and end up with no rounds on the gun line after a night battle. You get through it hugely quickly, and that is a lesson we must hoist in all the time. And Julian, when you talk to young military officers today, do you feel that the Falklands conflict is militarily relevant to them and what they have to do or may have to do? You must ask them that question. I, I think it is personally, because all the lessons are eternal, they never go away. The, the, the fact that you, the logistics will drive what you can do. You can't just say, oh, we'll go and do this, or, we'll go and do that. And somebody will say, no, actually, you can't do that because you haven't got enough whatever it is. I mean, for example, in the Falklands, the idea was that the brigade attack, five brigades, should attack the next night after my attack. They couldn't. Why? because there was no ammunition on the gun line. Not because there wasn't ammunition available in the Falklands, but it hadn't been lifted forward onto the gun line. And my chief logistics chap walked in to their brigade headquarters and said, if you think you're going to attack tonight, I've got news for you. You've got no ammunition on your gun line. And you really do need to take logistics seriously. 
and it's something that is not sexy. It's the bread and butter of success is logistics. Michael, we've, we've largely looked at lessons from the British campaign. What are the key lessons from the Argentine campaign? I think if there's a single key lesson, it is that don't go to war unless you really mean it. What the Argentinians did uh, was that they put a very inadequate force onto an island that they thought would dominate it and they didn't think that the British would react. And they were almost right, of course, that the British nearly didn't react. And it was only, the, in a sense, the accident that the first sea lord, Henry Leach, went into Downing Street on that Saturday morning. And when the cabinet was standing around thinking, oh, we can't do this, we can't do that, and it's all very difficult. And Mrs. Thatcher was looking for an ally. And she said to Leach, can we do it? And he said, yes, yes, we can do it. And it, it is your duty. By God, we will. And that, that tipped it. And if Henry Leach hadn't said what he said in Downing Street, then the Argentinians might have been right. But their lesson is, is the enemy always has a vote. You can't predict what the enemy will do. The enemy in this case was the British and against type, against the expectation, because of Henry Leach, Mrs Thatcher said, OK, we're going to do it. And we did. Gentlemen, stay with us. Well, one thing that armed forces have to be aware of in any conflict is civilian casualties. Three Falkland Islanders died in the conflict when a Royal Navy shell hit the house. They were sheltering in. Other incidents caused injuries. Tim Miller lost an eye. He's been telling his story to BFBS presenter Ginny Carlin. I suddenly heard the roar of jets. So I just rushed outside to see, well, whose is it this time? Ours or theirs? Our bungalow was just off the end, less than 100 metres away from the end of the main grass airstrip, to be confronted by two... RAF ground attack um, Harriers, very, very low at about 50 or 50 odd feet or so, coming straight towards me. And and the Harrier, with its wings that are drooped slightly, angled slightly down, when they're coming at you head on like that fast, by God, they're an evil looking aircraft. Mm. The RAF had seen the airstrip and to stop the Argentines using it had bombed it. Unfortunately, They hadn't realised that there were families living nearby. Luckily, in direct line between me and where the bomb exploded was what in those days we used to call our our meat safe shed. That apparently was sufficient to deflect enough of the explosion to stop my lungs collapsing and so on with with everything else. And also it absorbed a heck of a lot of the shrapnel. but not quite all of it. With a serious injury, Tim knew that he had to radio the doctor in Stanley, but his eye wasn't the only thing damaged by the bomb. The radio had been fried, so someone had to go up the telegraph pole to fix it. I was the only one that had a head for heights. (laughs) (laughs) So Muggins here with one eye bandaged up, and I was the guy who had to go up the ladder and get the damage repaired. While I was doing that, the bombers got a direct hit on the little farm store there, where, of course, we keep, amongst in the store there, there also there was some shotgun ammunition and some .22 rifle ammunition. And the .22 ammunition all started to cook off in the fire. And so all of a sudden there was ping, 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 where so my two brave mates at the bottom of the ladder rapidly disappeared. (laughs) (laughs) They did say afterwards it probably wasn't one of their finest moments, but... (laughs) Not wanting to face round two from the RAF Harriers, Tim and the rest of the settlement got on the move to Charters Farm, which was about 30 miles away. From there, Tim made it to his brothers at Hillcove, 
where members of the SBS were able to help Tim in seeking out medical staff. Doctors on HMS Fearless at Ajax Bay and the SS Uganda all said the same. Sadly, Tim had lost the sight in his eye and there was nothing to be done. When liberation came, Tim was taken back to the settlement at Dunnershead, where he heard the familiar sound of those British visitors. A helicopter arrived and these RAF guys started to get out of it. As they came up to us, one of them said, there's a chap here by the name of Tim Miller. And I said, yes, that's me, and sort of took a step forward. Whereupon Flight Lieutenant Mark Hare promptly took a step back. I cannot remember to this day what my first words were to him when he said, it was my bombs that got you. But I distinctly remember even 40 years on, he was carrying a good old standard REF Louis Gray canvas hold-all that was going clink, clunk in a very nice, glassy, alcoholic-sounding manner. (laughs) That was Tim Miller talking to Ginny Carlin, and Ginny is here now. Ginny, Tim sounds uh, pretty cheerful about what would have been a truly traumatic time. You spent several years working in the Falcons. You've just been back to talk to Tim and many others. In the UK now, the word Falcons seems to always be associated with the words war or conflict. But for the islands and Falklanders today, how much do those events of 40 years ago define them? Well, I was fortunate enough to live in Stanley and work at Mount Pleasant Complex. And I can honestly say that the Falklands is a thriving, expanding and developing community. One of the locals was telling me when I was there that there's over 60 different nationalities living there. Tourism and fishing are the main industries in the Falklands during the summer season, while cruise ships just queue up to come in. So I wouldn't say the conflict 40 years ago defines them. However, there's no denying how much it shaped their history and changed the islands and way of life forever. As you were saying, Kate, Tim Miller was particularly chipper. Sadly, not all of the islanders felt that way. And some that I met still really suffer with the aftermath of an aggressive invading force and the way that Argentina still tries to make claims to the islands. So it will always be remembered. And of course, the islanders' gratitude to those that liberated them burns bright and rightly is a staple of Falkland's culture. Also, young Falkland Falkland Islanders are are obviously from a generation that didn't see the conflict firsthand. They know the Falklands as it is now, post-conflict, if you like. So will it always be there? Absolutely. Does it define them? I don't think so. Britain's military presence in the Falklands has been much higher, though, since 1982 uh, than it was before. So do the islands feel like one big military garrison? Uh, To me, bizarrely, no. Even though there's around 1,500 troops there, the Falklands is very big and quite empty. Mount Pleasant Complex sits about 35 miles from Stanley and there's nothing really around it. In fact, one of the locals, uh, an ex-Marine, who was there during the conflict, said how during the COVID pandemic, the troops from Mount Pleasant Complex had really been missed in Stanley because people like seeing them. And Biff's side, that's British Forces South Atlantic Islands uh, statement, is to deter and to reassure. And the reassure bit, I know, is so important to the local community. The amount of islanders who said, we love the typhoons coming over. It's a sound of freedom. They welcome it. And of course, Mm. it's great training for the RAF as the airspace is so vast and empty. Uh, One islander said to me with great excitement that after the conflict, a phantom had come over their settlement so low that it had parted their hair and swept the chimney. (laughs) (laughs) I was quite disappointed that that didn't happen more today. Ginny Carlin, good to speak to you. Thank you for your time. Now, before we go, let's get final thoughts from Julian and Michael. Uh, Michael, when you look at the world today, the war in Ukraine, how relevant and important are the lessons of the Falklands in 1982 now? 
Oh, I think the fundamental lessons are still there. And, you know, the ultimate lesson is that war is a very serious business and that no society that gets involved in a war, either fighting or getting involved in the way that we are now involved in the Ukraine conflict variously, uh, you can't do that without having to make sacrifices. It dominates societies when you get involved in them. And luckily, the, the effect of the Falklands War on our society was comparatively light. The sacrifices were comparatively small. And that is because Julian Thompson and other commanders and all the young men actually were so good at what they did. And, and I have to say that, you know, 40 years later, I still feel grateful for that fact. They kept the cost to our, to our society as low as it was. Well, I think the, the big lesson is, is how important deterrence is. And the Falklands happened as, as a failure of deterrence. The Argentines were not deterred because they were not convinced that we would do anything about it. You've got to convince any adversary, Mr. Putin, for example, that if he steps out of line, he's going to suffer. Deterrence is what prevents war. Being ready is what prevents war, not pretending it's not going to happen. And Julian, I just want to ask you something that you mentioned earlier on. Um, you talked about learning in conflict, that you have to tear it up and start again, change your plans. I'm wondering, from your experience of the Falklands, how has that changed you as a person? Well, I think it made me realise the, the truth of a statement made to me by a very experienced parachute brigade commander of the Second World War who addressed his brigade on the eve of Normandy by saying, Gentlemen, do not be deter deterred if chaos reigns. Chaos undoubtedly will reign. And provided you expect it, you won't be disappointed. Major General Julian Thompson and Professor Michael Clark, thank you for your time today and thanks to all of our guests. We'll be back with another BFBS sitrep next Thursday. Until then, you can find more stories of the Falklands War at bfbs.com slash podcasts or by searching Falklands 82 wherever you get your podcasts. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening and goodbye. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. The government has now decided in an exclusive new BFBS podcast that a large task force will sail as soon as preparations are complete. Experience the 1982 Falklands conflict through the eyes of those who were there at the time. This is serious. We started action stations training, gun training. And the people that live and serve there now. Seeing those ships just burning away, that memory will never leave me. Falklands 82. Stories from the South Atlantic. Hear new episodes every Tuesday. Find it at bfbs.com slash podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts.